Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Rowey. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming by-elections in Longman and Mayo and the long list of senators who've been switching parties. I'm joined by two guests today for our discussion. My first guest is Peter Brent. Peter is an election watcher, adjunct fellow at Swinburne University and writer for Inside Story. Hello, Peter. G'day, Ben. G'day, Amanda. My second guest is Amanda McCormack. Amanda works as a research officer in the New South Wales Parliament and is with us in a personal capacity as a friend of mine. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Ben. Hey, Peter. Okay, so we have three topics today. We're going to be discussing the by-elections that are coming up in Mayo and Longman, the ones that we didn't discuss uh, a fortnight ago. And then we'll be uh, talking about the phenomenon that we've have been having recently of a, a bunch of senators joining other political parties. Uh, but let's start by discussing the seat of Mayo, which is uh, one of the seats that's up for election on July 28. Mayo was won in 2016 by the Nick Xenophon team's Rebecca Sharkey. She defeated Jamie Briggs with a margin of 5%. She was forced to resign from Parliament in May due to her renunciation of British citizenship taking place too late, which caused this by-election. She'll be recontesting as a representative of what is now called the Centre Alliance. She's challenged by Georgina Downer, daughter of the former Mayo MP Alexander Downer, and potentially the fourth generation of the Downer family in South Australian politics. We've now seen three local seat polls that have put Sharkey, after preferences, on 58 to 62%, which suggests she's likely to win comfortably. So, uh, Peter, what will you be watching for in the Mayo by-election results? Exactly those polls that you've mentioned, whether they are borne out. And because of those two polls, that of the the two seats we're talking about tonight is the one that I think we can be most sure of. And I'm pretty confident that Rebecca Sharkey will win, but that's based purely on those opinion polls. Despite the local seat polls indicating that after preferences, Rebecca Sharkey is likely to be on 58 to 62%, what happened at the South Australian state election, especially with name recognition like Xenophon leading the Centre Alliance, didn't replicate itself in any of the seats. And even in the seat that Xenophon did run in, he didn't wind up winning. And in this sense, I, I think the seat is too close to call at this stage. I, I take your point about the, the state election result and the disappointing result for Xenophon and his gang. But I imagine these opinion polls are asking these voters, are you going to vote for Rebecca Sharkey? They, they might mention her party name, but probably no one's heard of it. It's changed. Are you going to vote for Rebecca Sharkey or Georgina Downer? And I just think that the personalities, the, the people, obviously she has a high recognition factor and it's quite popular there. And so so that's why I believe the polls. Also, governments tend not to do well at by-elections. I mean, sometimes they do better than others, but on average, there's a swing against government. So that's um, why I think Georgina Downer, if she, I don't, I don't know why, um, whether she had a choice of waiting out until the next uh, federal election. I mean, I think the Liberals have a better chance of taking this seat at the next federal election than at a by-election. This is a seat where we we didn't have a good sense when the campaign started of whether Sharkey would would be a favourite to get re-elected. There was a whole bunch of factors that had changed since 2016, including the party name changing, the fact that Nick Xenophon has kind of stepped away. Those are all big factors, whether they may be part of the reason why people had voted. And no more Jamie Briggs. Well, that's what I was going to say, Jamie Briggs being a factor. There's a whole bunch of things there. And I mean, I'm generally a sceptic about seat polls and think that their value is limited. But I think when you're getting repeated polls in the high 50s or the low 60s, you 
you certainly have to adjust your priors to an assumption that probably she's the she's the favourite to win. Georgina Downer is a serious candidate. She's clearly someone who wants to be a member of parliament. They wouldn't have run her if, if they didn't think she had a, a good chance of getting elected. But the polls have clearly changed the perception of this seat. And, and depending on what happens, especially if she doesn't win, it's actually going to dampen her chances come the next federal election. Yes. I mean, she may not get a second go. Is I mean, often candidates don't get another go. So that's... Uh... That, that'll be interesting, assuming she loses, will she be able to get pre-selection again or would she want it even? I had been doing a little bit of digging in terms of um, Australia's dynastic political families and one of the interesting bits is that it looks like the Downer family, if Georgina was to win, might be one of the few families, if not the only family, to have four generations of a political family um, elected to parliament. Um, you know, you've got the courts and every, you know, and all the other ones through there, but it just seems that um, not many have direct, in terms of uh, grandparents, father, mother, children, grandchildren. Yeah, that, that's an in- interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that but certainly yeah there was a downer you know way back in in the night they go back at least as far as the 1890s so yes this this could be the longest the first downer he he was quite elderly when when um the second downer was born so there's quite a gap but he was yeah in the 1890s was a south australian premier and then his son was a menzies government minister i i find it really interesting like what does that say both the fact that you know, we have this fourth generation of the family running, but also that maybe that's one of the reasons that they haven't been doing very well, that she's someone who, while she grew up in this area and her father represented this area, she moved to Melbourne. What does that say, do you think, about the voters and their attitudes to, you know, someone coming in and saying, well, my dad was an MP and you should think of me as as a candidate? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we don't really know what some other Liberal candidate how they would be polling and how they would perform on election day um but it's possible that, that voters are going oh god you know these, these people feel they have an entitlement to to hand down these seats to their children um so so that that's quite possible just as an aside i sort of i wonder why why does anyone want to go into politics um i just suppose the more the closer the, the more i look at it the the less of an inviting career it seems particularly when they've seen it up close from having family members involved in it but i, I guess yeah. maybe that says something about alexander downer's experience of politics yeah he had some downs but uh it, it ended on quite a high so maybe uh she hasn't experienced the more negative sides of politics at least as an adult so it is interesting um probably the only other thing i find really fascinating about this seat is it's it's quite an unusual seat in terms of its support for minor parties but often in a kind of a, a centrist way. I mean, the Greens had a moment in 2008 where they came close to winning the by-election when Jamie Briggs replaced Alexander Downer, but it, it felt did like they, very, Did they come um, close? How, how close? I... Uh, the Greens The Greens got 47% to PP in 2008. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, so they, they, it wasn't yeah. like mm. on the night we didn't know who won, but they, 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 they performed respectably well. But there was definitely an element of... It was a more centrist Greens campaign. You know, this wasn't a radical kind of Greens campaign. And the, you have this element in this electorate that, you know, they're not 
they're not really willing to vote liberal, but they're very open to Other, these well, kind of progressive, centre progressive So one parties. of the things I did do in preparation was I had a look at the um, census demographic information for this area. And it is actually interesting to have a look at it because... Um, in terms of South Australia generally having an older population than the other states and territories, the Adelaide Hills and surrounds seem to be slightly younger than the average South Australian age. They also have uh, higher income, both in terms of the average for South Australia and uh, compared to the, uh, the Australian average. They're also far more highly educated, so you've got a clear bulk more than 50% of the population actually graduating year 12. And then when you couple that with um, post-secondary uh, post education, once again, when you're looking at, say, certificate for diploma, bachelor level, and even postgraduate degree qualifications, there seems to be uh, far more of those sorts of qualifications held by people who live in that particular area. Well, I mean, a lot of those a lot of those are factors that often suggest support for the Greens. You know, that sort of professional class. Um, if you're in Sydney, the kinds of seats that would look like that would be the North Shore kind of places. Traditionally, they vote Liberal, but they have that kind of social progressive bent. You know, despite Tony Abbott's representation in Warringah, that seat voted overwhelmingly in favour of marriage equality. And there's there there's a bit of a we haven't heard in a while, but a doctor's wives phenomenon in. Um, in Mayo, and it does seem like Sharkey has kind of caught that caught that um, yeah. support. I'm just looking at my um, census page that I made up after or well, for the 2013 election, so it's a little bit out of date. But it's got uh, Mayo is number one in the state for median age. Um, percentage speak only English in the home. That's a good proxy for no migrants. Um, Non-government, non-Catholic school, number one as well. So anyway, um, we'll be we'll be watching Mayo, but probably not as closely as some of the other ones, particularly Braddon and Longman, which we'll get to in a second. But it it will be interesting to see uh, how how this party sons uh, Nick Xenophon can do in um, in this by-election. I really think it's got very little to do with with the party Centre Alliance party. It's it's really about this member they've elected called Rebecca Sharkey. And, I mean, to them, she may as well be an independent. I'm, I'm sure they no longer associate her with... with uh, they barely associate her with Xenophon um, and whatever that, you know, the Centre Alliance Party, you know, have they heard of her? You know, I wonder how many in the seat actually have heard of that uh, party. Well, this is an interesting question because this party um, didn't do that badly in the South Australian election. It's just their vote is very evenly distributed and they fell below the level where they would win many seats and so they just they got a lot of votes and didn't get many seats but they had um, nick's name in the part in the party had, name that's right well that's the thing i mean i do wonder now they have these two upper house mps and they have a couple of senators none of whom are up for election for a while uh like what happens to this party i mean it's got kind of frankly a not very interesting name there's not really any the senators that they have are very low profile. Um, like, yeah, how they do in, in 2019. I mean, they probably have some residual support and it gives them a good shot at winning back that seat that Sky Kokoshki-Moore lost to Tim Storer. But, uh, you know, Xenophon was their brand. and um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
the, the other issue there is is that I think running in a lower house seat is quite different. Running a lower house seat campaign is different to running an upper house seat campaign. And in that sense, the way that Nick Xenophon seemed to approach the Senate election was about a particular way of branding himself and the values that he stood for, whereas often in a lower house seat it's about not just name recognition but it's about the connection that you have with people who ultimately will put a one or a whatever beside that person's name who's running in the seat. Um, And I do wonder if whether or not the parties like um, Xenophon and whatever else can actually make the translation to um, running a, a lower house seat campaign. Well, I and it, it is a it was a problem for them. I think that uh, every time that Xenophon had done well in the past, he was running a very high profile campaign for the upper house against largely anonymous uh, Labor or Liberal senators or members of the upper house, and instead his candidates, including himself, were up against quite prominent people with local personal votes. And I do think that probably did have an impact. Uh, and that's why, you know, for someone like Sharky, now that she's gotten the foot, her foot in the door and she has that personal vote, uh, it'll, I mean, if she could have, uh, whether or not that party is a factor, like like a strong rural independent, you know, we've had Ted Mack in the past as an urban independent, but in a similar kind of demographically similar seat, um, you can see someone like that holding on for quite a while. Our second topic is the Queensland seat of Longman. And the polls suggest that the by-election in Longman will be much closer than the one in Mayo. Uh, Longman covers the Moreton Bay area between Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast, including Caboolture and a few other towns. Uh, Labor's Susan Lamb won the seat off Wyatt Roy in 2016, but she also fell foul of Section 44 and was forced to resign in May. She's being challenged by Trevor Rothenberg, who was a one-term state MP for the LNP. He got elected in the landslide victory for Campbell Newman in 2012 and was swept out in 2015. Um, Likes to be called uh, Big Ted. Big Trev. Big Trev. <laughs> Big Ted. Uh, maybe maybe if his name was Ted, it would have worked better. Yeah. Um, we've, we've seen three public polls for, for Longman from Reachtel. All three have given the LNP a narrow lead on the two-party preferred vote. Uh, we have 53%, 52%, and 51% respectively. Maybe you can see a trend there. Uh, these polls also suggest that One Nation is on track to do quite well, with the last poll putting them on 15%. Now, again, I, I keep emphasising, until we have an opportunity to properly discuss it, seat polls do have a large margin of error, and even a 53% result isn't particularly definitive. Um but it does suggest that this race is close and it's and it's quite possible that we could see uh, the opposition lose this seat. Um, so, Amanda, what do you think it would it, the, the result in this seat would mean for the next federal election? Uh, the, the one of the things that I am finding interesting in watching this seat, um, regardless of that particular result, because I do think that's going to be interesting in and of itself, is... Uh, the way in which One Nation has been campaigning and the results that happened in the Queensland election. Now, similar to the South Australian state election, you had that third party uh, campaign happening and trying to win seats. Um, Look, it it did win, I think, from memory, one seat. Um, 
in the Queensland Parliament. It didn't translate into an overwhelming um, sense that there was going to be a third force in, in politics in Queensland. But what is interesting is that because the the vote is compulsory preferential, is that the third party can actually play a very real role in who it is that gets elected. I I actually enjoy looking at the seat of Longman because it, it's this seat that's full of contradictions. At one end around Bribey Island, you've got higher SES, you've got people who may traditionally uh, vote uh, Liberal, and whereas around Caboolture and that sort of area, you've got this very working class area. and it, it's, it's, very, it's very dark red around Caboolture on the map. Yeah, and, and it's this strange seat in terms of um, each end, and yet... I, I do wonder about the impact of One Nation running in this seat. Yeah, I mean, One Nation famously uh, directed their preferences to Labor in 2016 in uh, Longman, and that was kind of credited as being part of the reason Labor won. I mean, the effect wasn't that strong, like their preferences didn't flow that strongly really anywhere, and I remember doing calculations that showed that so Labor did win by about 0.8% margin, and if you take if you lower the One Nation preference flow to what they what they got in the rest of the state, on average, um, you end up reducing that zero point eight margin basically to a tie. So the cost for Labor would have been about zero point eight, maybe if you just assume that it would have been average. Um, so that's not a huge factor, but in a close race, that can really matter. And I think a big difference between twenty sixteen now is that One Nation. They kind of came out of nowhere at that election, and I think even themselves were a bit surprised at how they did. Um, and I suspect that they didn't have that many people handing out how to vote, which meant whatever they recommended, people weren't necessarily seeing it. And apart from the fact that they're probably better organised now, although you know, I don't think they've ever been particularly well organised, when it's one seat, it's the only seat in the state, and it's much easier to cover your boots, and you would expect to have a much, much more of the population getting a One Nation how to vote this time. So that might suggest that their how to votes have more of an effect. My back of my napkin has um, differs to yours slightly in that had One Nation preferences flowed the rest of the way the rest of the state, they'd flowed in the rest of the state, then Roy would have won. Not by much. I don't no, think. not by much. That, that's true. Yeah, I mean, we'll never know. We, we don't know how, how great their presence was on the ground, how many of those cards they managed to thrust into voters' hands. But as you say, with, with just one by-election in Queensland, in Brisbane, on Ju- on July 28, they should be able to get a lot of volunteers. It, it'll be really interesting to see the preference flow. I mean, it'll certainly favour Big Trev, um, but, you know, whether it has a six, you know, maybe with a six in front of it instead of a five, that'll be interesting. My view on the polling is that, and, and this, this is more relevant to this seat than the last one because, really because of the size of, of the gap in, in, in uh, Mayo in the polling, but most Australians, I don't know whether they know what a by-election is, let alone know that one's coming up, and so they get a robo-call, which I think all the polls so far have been saying, if there was a by-election held today, who would you vote for? And they... I think they're answering so far along the lines of if there was a general election held today. I, I just don't think the by-election dynamic has kicked in in um, 
in either Longman or Bradnett. And, and so I just, I sort of don't really think the polls are measuring what, uh, I, I just think it's too soon. And usually, I mean, by-elections are unpredictable because there's so little at stake. There's no, it's not about who's going to run the country. It's about who's going to represent this seat, which usually ends up being who can we send a message to, you know, and let's tell the government the, you know, what they can no longer take us for granted. And that's why, that's a large reason, large part of the reason why they usually swing against governments. And I, I just, it'll, the next two and a half weeks is really when we, we need to look at the polling. And, and even then, as Ben says, seat polling is, is pretty rough. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if Labor wins big. I, I suppose I just expect it to drift toward, drift Labor's way. Well, I, I think one of the, the key bits in this for both Mayo and Longman in this sense is actually what happens at pre-poll. Like we're heading towards a situation where somewhere between a quarter and a third of all votes are generally pre-poll votes, regardless of whether or not it's the general election or a by-election. But with pre-poll now opened, I think we are going to get a better sense of how it is that people are voting, especially midway through pre-poll, given that the sheer number of votes that actually uh, get cast during the pre-poll period by voters. And I, it will be interesting to see if whether or not any of the seat polls that are done that were done before Monday compared to any of the ones that are done midway through the pre-poll period changed substantially. Uh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I find interesting is Longman particularly, Brad and to a lesser extent, I could totally imagine a scenario if these by-elections weren't happening where Labor could win comfortably, probably not a landslide victory, but win a comfortable national victory while losing Longman. Mm, me too. Uh, you know, it is that kind of seat where that could happen. So... That I mean, that could be a scenario where, you know, Labor loses this seat and actually they may be still on track to form government, but it has could have all sorts of destabilising effects that, um, that you know, may well change that course. But when you look at it on the numbers, you could say, yes, they have lost this seat, but yes, they are still winning in the polls. Um, but I, I think it is interesting that, that dynamic of how much it will be about the individual candidates because the other thing that, I mean, Peter, you mentioned the history that generally governments don't gain seats at by-elections, but these these Section 44 by-elections are very unusual in that sense, right? Because first of all, you practically never get a by-election where the incumbent MP is running again. Um, you generally have a lot less by-elections in marginal seats, in my experience, because uh, you know nowadays it used to be the case that a lot of by-elections were caused by the local member dying, but these days people tend to retire in reasonably good health and at a time of their choosing. And generally, people only choose to retire if they're in a seat where it doesn't matter, either because the government's margin is, they have a lot of seats to spare and it won't matter if, if that seat is lost or because their seat is reasonably safe. So having Braddon and Longman as two extremely marginal seats with sitting MPs creates a whole different dynamic. And I just don't think we have any idea what, what that's going to have. You know, it may well be that... Uh, people are voting on the basis of Susan Lamb and Justine Kay, although I suspect that, I don't know, I get a lot of commenters on the blog who uh, talk a lot about um, being angry at, at them because of the Section 44 issue, and I don't think that that's going to be a factor. I think generally... Yeah, I think we should we can ignore comments on blogs uh, <laughs> as, as a matter the, of but policy. But the other thing is, is 
How, how many how many of our fellow citizens have sat down and read the Constitution as well and actually understand the ins and outs of Section well, 44? I I can confess that I uh, I ran for federal parliament three times while holding British <laughs> citizenship. Um, so <laughs> to be fair, I was I was only eighteen and nineteen the first two times I did it. So I don't really think I could have been held responsible. But then again, maybe that's a reason why I shouldn't have been running for federal parliament. But um. But what is important is is what the voters, what the voters think about it. And it, it, it's, I mean, Barnaby Joyce and um, and John Alexander seemed to not incur much wrath from their electorates about about their mistakes. But it's possible that in our patriarchal society, these two female MPs are judged more harshly. And I sort of mean that seriously. It's possible that people are uh, uh, harsher about. Women, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, so they're, they're held to a different standard in terms of knowing exactly what they're signing up for versus, yeah, mm. yeah, I can see. And there that. clearly was there clearly was an element where Labor, when it became clear that uh, Susan Lamb in particular and Longman was going to have to resign, and she came into the Parliament and gave a speech about um, all of her particular unfortunate personal circumstances that have made it so hard for her to resolve her citizenship issues. Uh, although in the end it, it got dealt with reasonably cleanly this time around, uh, that that felt to me like a clear effort by Labor to lay all the cards out on the table and say this is not a person who has um, acted irresponsibly or has done this just, just out of laziness. Like I think that was an element to, to see off any concern about um, her being judged for that. But I, I think until we see any evidence, I mean, there's... we. We, it's not just this. It's not the last, just the last year, but it's also decades of experience that when, when MPs get undone for technicalities, their electorates pretty much universally vote them back in. Mm. Jackie Kelly in '96 is a another example, isn't she? Yeah, and Phil Cleary in '93. I mean, that wasn't a by-election. He ran again in the general election, but he was re-elected after coming coming afoul, um, which then raises interesting questions about. If we ever had a vote on Section Forty Four, but maybe that's a topic for another day. Definitely, um, I suspect the, dy- the dynamic but, would be very different. The the other thing that I think, just in terms of Longman, and it's it's one of the things that that I do find myself coming back to and thinking about a fair bit is the seat of Longman, given its particular geography, terrain, and the industries that it covers, is that it, it's this seat that has a mix of both not strictly speaking metro, but city-based and regional-based characteristics mm. all lumped together. Um, and when I sat down and was having a look at the, the pendulum uh, earlier today, it's interesting the number of seats that are those outer metropolitan and regional seats on both sides. Um, and, and I think, I, and I do wonder if whether or not um, that Longman in some ways is a barometer and a way to test if whether or not that the path to government is actually through the bush and it is through not running the same sort of metro campaigns but in terms of looking at what's happening in each seat and the way in which regional and non-metro based seats have had to campaign in the past. Well, there is a massive over-representation of marginals that are in what I think of as the urban fringe, that you're kind of, you're, you're they're almost suburbia. They're the MacArthur's or the... Uh, the central coast seats or places like that and I mean Dixon, Longman, 
on the outer, outer outskirts of Brisbane as well. So they're, they're, they are definitely a big element in deciding who forms government. But again, I just want to stress that this is just a by-election. I think people in general inter- over-interpret by-elections. I, I don't think we can, whatever happens on July 28, there's not really much we can take away. And um, even as, as Ben says, if Labor loses both those seats, it doesn't really... It doesn't really, to me anyway, lessen much the likelihood of them winning the next general election, but it will certainly be interpreted that way. And, and I suppose that, that is the that is going to be interesting. And that, that is really where it could have an impact is and, the interpretation. And, and then thinking about the issue of confidence and the role in which that, you know, a small whisper starts and it gradually gets bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then, absolutely. I mean, if they... if if Labor knocks off Shorten and whoever his replacement is gets a big boost in the polls and the Liberals are thinking, oh, my God, you know, come back, Bill, you know, we, we should have treated him more <laughs> more kindly. In all these by-elections, what, what's Tony Abbott going to do over the next two and a half weeks? Because a, a by-election played a large part in his downfall in that his party, even though they had a massive majority, they all got obsessed with this canning by-election it was going to tell them whether they were they were going to win or lose the next election and then in the end they were saying oh my god we might lose canning oh my god we you know we better get rid of tony so we don't lose canning um it's it's you know, that part of the dynamic was not not very logical but it's sort of they got swept away and I, I just think tony is possibly i mean he has been a bit more naughty than usual the last week or so 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 that could be interesting and that change of leadership happened like a week before that by-election. Like it was extremely close. So our final topic today is about party hopping in the Senate. Over the last few months, we've seen a string of senators leave their parties and really, and importantly, join other parties. Lucy Gachuhi, formerly of Family First, joined the Liberal Party. Fraser Anning left One Nation or was kicked out of One Nation and joined Catter's Australian Party. Steve Martin, who was elected on the Jackie Lambie Network ticket, has joined the Nationals, the first Nationals MP from Tasmania in a very long time. Brian Burston, another former One Nation senator, recently joined Clive Palmer's resurrected party with the imaginative name of the United Australia Party. It's at least the third party with that name in my time involved in politics. Uh, it's not that strange to see minor party senators leaving the parties that elected them. That's that's not a very unusual thing. We saw uh, numerous others including John Madigan and Glenn Lazarus and Jackie Lambie do the same in the last term. But these people in this term aren't setting up their own parties. Last term we had the Glenn Lazarus team, the Jackie Lambie network, John Madigan's Manufacturing and Farmers Party or something like that. But even though federal MPs have the right just to set up a political party with no need for membership requirements or any of that, Corey Bernardi is the only senator to have set up a his own new party in this parliament. We haven't seen any of that happening. So I'm really curious about this and what it says about whether our party system is shifting slightly with the Senate reforms. And Peter, maybe you can start us off like, do you think that this is a trend that we see or why you think this might be the case? The the trend, I suppose, is that major party support is shrinking and and minor party support is growing. And even though the um, preference whispering was done away with at the last election we had a double dissolution instead and so all these people who 
probably thought they didn't have a hope of getting into Parliament. And sometimes they can be strange people. I mean, that happens with the major parties as well. At, at, at uh, these big landslides, these people who really no one thought they were in no hope of seats and they end up in Parliament. And, and um, I, I just think that's a large part of uh, the disintegration that's been going on over the last two terms. I mean, we had Palmer United... Know, a few oddballs in the Senate there, and then with with this with this Section Forty Four stuff and people leaving, and the next person on the ticket being elevated, and you know that so they were you know they weren't remotely considering that they would actually end up in Parliament, and I just I think that that's part of it that that, that these are unusual people. You know what sort of person runs on the One Nation Senate ticket? As number three. As number three, <laughs> um, and. Uh, I suppose that one nation is quite volatile. Yeah, I, I just suppose it's the they don't have the discipline of the major parties, the the coherence, and so they're likely to fragment. And then also, the the, the knowledge and having some sort of window into or uh, understanding of the processes and how things work. In you know, especially in terms of something like the Senate with its committee system and you know, the, the arcane and, and whatever else. And in that sense, parties that do have an established presence are able to train up and show people how it works so it's not a massive thing, when, you know, as soon as someone new comes onto the scene and, you know, you open up the door and all of a sudden there's all of these new things thrust onto you and it's all new knowledge. And a lot of it comes from Britain, you know, way back when in terms of establishing the rules and standing orders and all of those other things that make our parliamentary democracy work. One thing I find interesting, though, is that until... So I don't know the last time we had a minor party senator join a major party. The only other example I can think of was a state MLC, uh, Peter Breen, who joined the Labor Party and then quickly left the Labor Party most recently was uh, prominent for being, uh, I believe, the State Secretary of One Nation New South Wales and working for Brian Burston, um, which was fascinating because he was a centre-left minor party um, MLC. But it's very unusual. And what I find interesting about it is that until recently, there was this incentive in our voting system to just set up as many parties as you wanted, that splitting the vote wasn't really a big issue and effectively you just gave yourself another ticket in the lottery. And I do wonder if, you know, 2016, that lottery was removed, but the half quota meant a lot of these people could survive. But we did see that uh, the people who got elected tended to be the people who got the primary votes. You know, nearly all of the people who got elected were the ones who were like first in the queue um, or like One Nation just did very well on on preferences. So I do wonder, we've, we've seen, we saw Family First merging with Corey Bernardi's party, which from a branding perspective was probably a very bad idea, but makes a certain amount of sense from a, from a consolidation perspective. We've seen the sex party merging with the cyclists and there's a few other small parties, very small parties that have merged. And I think probably it's a slow effect because for a bunch of them, they'll need to see what happens in 2019, but probably we're going to see a lot of crossbenchers lose their seats in the next election. Mm -hmm. And I look particularly at the right who you could say all four, they're far more fragmented in terms yeah. of the number of parties that are broadly represented. And we haven't yet seen a right minor party consolidate, and clearly One Nation's not not really capable of it, even if they get 
a lot of people elected. They're not, they don't really have the discipline for it. But there's just as much, if not more, of a vote on that minor party right as there is for the Greens. And I do wonder, I think it probably will be a gradual gradual effect, but whether some of these people think this is the only way I survive. I, I don't think that's a perfect example. Lucy Gachuhi, I think probably anyone sensible could have predicted that she wouldn't get pre-selected as, as has now happened. And, you know, Steve Martin for the Nationals in Tasmania, he now has a brand name and he has a party that can help him get support, but they have no presence on the ground and I don't really know how that's going to play out. But I do think there's an element there where people are like the the risk or the lottery ticket of just slapping your name on a party and putting it out there seems to have gone away. And I mean, one thing that I find really interesting that has come up in the New Zealand context around this same issue is what they, they refer to this as waka jumping, which is referring to a sort of a Maori canoe. And they've had this phenomenon where their voting system their proportional voting system has the effect often of electing one really prominent candidate and then a bunch of people who no one's ever heard of. And there's a strong temptation for those people to quit their party. And uh, Winston Peters, who's now the Deputy Prime Minister, as he was uh, over a decade ago, very much has a problem with that. And when he was last in a position of influence, they passed a law that actually prohibited people from, if you left your party and joined another party, you would actually lose your seat in parliament. In that sense, I can understand why in New Zealand they would do that given their particular electoral politics and just how, especially after an election, the number of uh, groups that come together to stitch together a deal to actually form government and govern. And it just seems that because a coalition is made up of not one, uh, not two parties, but two or more in that sense, anything that can change the the balance one way or another, yeah. when you actually want stability in that sense, I completely understandable because it could, I, I you know, from a, once again an outsider's perspective, it could potentially cause a lot of instability and destabilize a, a, a government midterm. Uh, I mean, it's one of the things that I find quite interesting in Australia for that reason as well is, you know, in our constitution when it comes to uh, replacing senators, especially senators that resign midterm and whatever else, thanks to Sir Joe from Queensland, we've now got the, the constitutional amendment that got voted up, which is you've got to replace like with like. And, you know, once again, that that happened because there was some destabilisation that happened when Joe appointed, and I can't even remember, you know, and that caused a lot of instability because there there's the Queensland Parliament um, picking someone from not from the same party to replace that person. And in that sense, at the moment, when I'm looking at the crossbench in the Senate, it's actually fascinating to see what is going on because the government does need to stitch together deals with a raft of different people. And so anyone that they can bring on to their side also then reduces the need to actually go out and negotiate those particular deals with. And, I mean, there's a there's a it, it, both the New Zealand example and these recent new senators makes you wonder a bit about what it is, makes you think about the question of what makes someone loyal to a party and part of it is the ability to get re-elected and most of these people don't really have much of a prospect of getting re-elected or they've chosen to switch to a party where they think they have a better chance and until now we had this this escape valve where you create your own party you put your name out there you hope that things come out your way 
And uh, that that's kind of what well, we think it's probably gone away. We'll see how that goes at the next election. But it's, uh, it is interesting about this Section 44 situation, what, what that tells us about about how parties keep discipline and why it's been that lack of discipline. In that sense, you've hit on something that I think is really interesting, especially about the the Senate and the number of parties that do run in Australia. And I look at, you know, the major parties that have, you know, firm presence for more than, say, 40 years onward. And the parties that endure and remain are the ones that seem to have some sort of fundamental value that actually brings people to them. And in terms of electoral politics, it seems that if there isn't a fundamental value or drive that brings people to that party, that the likelihood of sticking around might not remain. Just on anti-party hopping legislation, there is, um, it is, it's not unusual in developing countries, particularly in the South Pacific, uh, where it's where party hopping is has been rampant. It's. But it's it's actually difficult to enforce because how do you define, put another way, someone can stay in a party but not behave as if they are in that party. And so, for example, Papua New Guinea, they had they put in place anti-party hopping rules that said you had to vote along the party lines on confidence, budget and something else. Um, but those those sorts of things don't apply in the Senate. So it would be you know quite quite interesting to see if we and i know that we're not really contemplating that that's likely but if you're just talking about the upper house anti-party hopping laws would be very difficult to to enforce uh, i suppose you could just you know you could say uh cory bernardi says i'm still a liberal um but i'm still doing these things the old new zealand law would throw someone out of parliament but they had to they had to resign it wasn't it, expelling someone wasn't enough and you had this an example of where the law kind of was didn't didn't work the way it was expected to was that when the alliance broke up and Jim Anderton who was the deputy prime minister went off to form his own new party he was he formed that party and he was campaigning for that party in the election but he still sat as a member of his old party in the parliament and thus got to sit in that parliament so this party split had a very deep destructive split while in the parliament but everyone just just said no 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 none of us are leaving we're all still technically members of the same party so and that that is a situation where i don't i don't think these kind of laws work and i think probably that's the discussion that's happening in new zealand now that labor is kind of signed on to this piece of legislation but the greens are not and um i suspect the greens are gonna are gonna say we think this is a bad idea and it'll be interesting to see if that's enough to kill it uh but yeah i mean and we're going to have to watch and see what happens to our party system under our current voting and our new Senate voting system now that it creates a little bit more stability. It's a bit harder for a minor party to get elected. It does mean if you do get elected, you have a better chance of getting elected next time and maybe it creates an incentive if you are a member of a stronger minor party to stick with that party in the same way that it works now for the Greens. Uh, and what that does for the passage of legislation, I look at the current crossbench, there's a conservative block that has the votes that most of the time would be able to pass legislation for the government or at least get them close. Uh, but things are often made a lot harder because they all they don't work as a block, whereas when Labor, when Labor had the Greens in the balance of power, it made things a lot easier because they, you had these two parties that were able to cooperate. In a sense, that made life easy for the Gillard government, but they were terribly hamstrung because they couldn't even contemplate doing something that the Greens 
wouldn't support. And uh, so that really, they couldn't strike out and uh, it really forged their own uh, identity too much. Okay, so that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thanks to Amanda and Peter for joining me and thanks to all of you for listening. I'll be back in just over two weeks with a quick show wrapping up the results of the federal by-elections and then we'll get back into a regular fortnightly schedule. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music that you hear in this episode. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Once again, thank you to Amanda. Thank you. And Peter. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Amanda. And uh, thank you to everyone for listening. Bye.